For March 20th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 455. Don't woke the beast. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together talking about the things we love. This week, about Beauty and the Beast, the dark, gritty, live-action reboot of the franchise <laughs> that's R-rated and features uh, that features Emma Watson um, impaling Gaston on a, a flagpole and singing revolutionary songs no i just uh, i just mashed up beauty and, beauty, and the beast, beauty and the beast begins right? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> i just uh i just mashed up beauty and the beast logan and i think les miserables uh <laughs> as well no uh it is a uh, pg rated and i i mean i think that that's important um it's not g-rated there are some like legitimately scary moments in this and there were a couple yeah. of a couple light of kids penetration light penetration <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple but you mean by teeth of of wolves into the beast's oh, yeah. arm? Uh, well, and, there is there is a dental sexual act that is, yeah, is exactly <laughs> alluded to, and sh- the consequences of it are shown on screen. So, <laughs> 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 danto sexual, danto sexual. I don't know. But we're uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let me introduce the panel for tonight. We have Pete Fenzel. Hello, Matt. We have Mark Lee. Bonjour. We are joined by <laughs> Rachel. Hello. And Ryan. That girl is so unusual. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm your host, Matt Rather, and let's uh, let's talk about this. So the the biggest thing in the the last couple weeks, the lead up to this, is that I heard all kinds of people were going to boycott it uh, because this film is trying to advance the gay agenda. And indeed, uh, this film does commit the sacrilege of showing uh, for a brief second for just the briefest of half-second shots, uh, a, a two men dancing together in the final wedding scene. Spoiler, spoiler alert, uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast get together, right? Uh, dancing, and, and they are, not only uh, are they a homosexual couple dancing together at the wedding, but they are of mixed ethnicities. So we are uh, offending against the fairy tale law that says two fair-haired... Uh, white heterosexuals have to, um, you know, have to sort of live happily ever after in order for the fairy tale to be valid. But this leads to a little question that I want to raise, and I'm going to raise it to uh, to our our wokeness arbiter, Pete Fenzel. Uh, Pete, um, as oh, the great now that's my title. <laughs> great. <laughs> as the, as the wokeness arbiter, I mean, Pete. Some some are born woke, some achieve wokeness, and some have and wokeness. Some have wokeness thrust upon them, right? Yeah, <laughs> and that's. That's what's happening to you now. I, I want to ask, is this film woke? The Beauty and the Beast live-action CGI reboot is not woke per se, but it is heavily caffeinated. It is just jacked up with <laughs> all manner of apologism and also all manner of correction, right? Uh, if, if anything... Now, this is a movie that I think, I mean, I liked. I think a lot of people like this movie. But if there is one sort of glaring problem with the movie other than the quality of the singing, it is the relationship, the sort of 
the turgid, not the turgid, torrid, the torrid relationship it has with its predecessor, right, of the original Beauty and the Beast, which it pretty clearly uh, disapproves of in a bunch of ways, right? Uh, it's a it's a movie that really disapproves of and wants to critique and change the movie that came before it, while also uh, cribbing its songs word for word, not cribbing, but like reproducing, right? So it wants to capture the magic of the previous movie. It wants to bring in a lot of the lyrics of the songs to the previous movie, but it makes like a whole bunch of changes to the characters and what happens, often for the better. Uh, I would say, but also that slow it down and kind of like make it more complicated, right? In order to try to, uh, 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 I guess, I guess I, I wouldn't say sort of cleanse itself or avoid it, but it does almost sort of feel like to do penance for the story that they are are obligated to tell because of its past popularity, right? I mean, did anyone else have that sort of feeling, right, where it's like, well, and, and to to really make it really simple, right? Um, in, in fairy tales, right, things, people get put into situations in fairy tales by wizards, uh, that are bad, right? The wizard, witch, enchantress, what have you, puts the people in a bad situation and, and then the people act in the situation and the fairy tale sticks around because of the way that the people act and, and it sort of says something about human nature. Uh, but nowadays we don't just sort of assume that the circumstances people are in are made by wizards, right? Like we, we sort of say, well, you know, you chose to put the people in that situation as a storyteller, right? You could have put them in a different situation. Also, uh, the main characters, by sort of going along with the wizard and the wizard's plans, do offer a certain amount of tacit or or uh, or overt endorsement of the wizard's plans, right? And so, in this case, the enchantress basically forces this woman indirectly to live with this monster. And 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 sort of sets up this normative goal that the woman and the monster are supposed to get together, right? And they're supposed to have sex. And the mo- the monster is supposed to forcibly contain and restrain the woman to the point where she goes, you know what? You're a great guy. Let's fall in love and have babies. And and if you view hey, the agency, hey Pete, it's better than the friend zone. Okay. <laughs> Saying that it's yeah, that's uh, I tell you when I when I was in when I was in high school, sometimes I feel like like everybody was just turning me into a candelabra. I just didn't feel like a man. I wasn't appreciated. But it's like it's like in the original in the in the animated Beauty and the Beast, there's not really a whole lot of awareness of this whole idea, this sort of situation that everybody is in, and how morally repugnant it is, right? And you're in that weird spot where you're not in the old German story, where or what have you, a French story, because this one is an old French story, right? Based on like an old nobleman from France or Czechoslovakia or something. Um, but anyway, it's not the old European story where it's sort of understood that the world is a horrid, terrible place where wizards do terrible things to you and you have no control over them, right? Uh, you're in Disney World where where things are happy and things are good, but you still have this sort of situation that's been set up by horrible monsters. And so you're sort of at lending tacit approval to the horrible monster view of the world, which is that women ought to be locked up until they change their mind, right? <laughs> which is not how you want to be telling the stories of women. And, and so at all, like that's abhorrent. And so this one, this the Beast is like, well, people love that story, right? Like, people love it. People love the movie that we made about it. Let's, we know that it's morally repugnant. So let's try to figure out how to fix it, right? And the fixing isn't like one big fix. It's a whole bunch of little fixes that happen throughout the entire movie end to end. Uh, and some of them are, are some, some of them are good uh, in terms of morally rectifying the situation. Some of them are not as effective at morally rectifying the situation. Some make the movie more fun. Some make the movie less fun. Some make the movie go get longer and slower. Some you look back at 
the original movie and you're like, how did they possibly not do this change? Because it's such a good idea, right? Like that kind of thing. I don't know. So that's that's how I would say. I would say that they have been injecting this thing with five-hour energy uh, in the hopes that it might, in the end calculus, be woke, but that it is not woken of its own accord. Uh, that is for sure. So just kind of j- jumping in, though, in the setup, I mean, I think it's – it's worth noting in terms of the story, and I think this is in both the uh, French fairy tale version, which is actually more recent than you might suspect, right? That the French version um, was written actually in 1740. Um, oh, it's that yeah. new? Yeah, it's wow. that new, and we, we can return to that, um, but I was actually really surprised to learn that as well, that I, I kind of associated it as being much more of a kind of, you know, early modern Europe, uh, as opposed to being, you know, a few decades off from the French Revolution right, and the American it's a, Revolution. It's about, the original sin is about hospitality, right? And that's that seems to be like an yes. older value. Yes, um, but and, and, but this kind of hospitality piece is the other the other piece, right, that you know that it's not the case that the enchantress locks up bell right the enchantress locks up the beast and all of his servants and says you have to have someone fall in love with you and there's he's she does not specify the means by which he has to do that <laughs> right, right? right, right. Like, like you know this this jerky you know that that is is the move of this jerky aristocrat uh that is like i guess he reveals something about himself that uh which is like well overall my overall all strategy would have been like locking up you know it's like you bring a woman to your to your castle and then it's just like the implication of being in a castle right? it's the dennis reynolds yeah, yeah beauty and the dentist is a very similar movie with a very different right. ending yeah exactly totally um, yeah exactly i'm trying to think like what uh uh yeah in the, if oh, the always sunny in philadelphia beauty and the beast like what frank reynolds what danny devito would be like he's the toilet right like almost certainly danny devito is the talking he's toilet. like the toilet scrub <laughs> i think charlie's the scrub and, and frank's and, the, and toilet. He's the toilet uh, but anyhow we get sidetracked off of our always sunny beauty and the beast beauty and the dentist um that that like that the the coercive peace comes from the beast first first imprisoning um bell's father and then her trading her space uh swapping out um and so once you get there it does have that um that energy that you that you describe um but it's definitely it's it, it it is not set up by the enchantress, and I think that I mean it's interesting to think about um, how that kind of setup um, is a little different than um, already thinking of this as a slightly more modern um, fairy tale. And I think there were versions of stories that this was based on, but the version that ultimately became um, this story uh, is a bit closer to um, the kind of great, um, you know, to the to the Enlightenment, right, and to um, these various kind of uh, major social re- uh, uh, transformations. I mean, it's still, I guess in some ways, the, the, the problems then are even cast in a different light. Um, and I think they're still there uh, in the way that Pete... Um, uh, lays out, but it's a it's an additional uh, wrinkle. Uh, the the yeah um, to, add, to add to this in terms of like uh, something that's not specifically woke, but also kind of is a is a paradigm shift in terms of how stories like this are, are told. In the 1991 version, this was still a kind of a storytelling era where people were allowed to be borderline sociopathic just <laughs> <laughs> just because. Right. And we just we accepted that, you know, Um, Gaston didn't have in the uh, in the uh, animated 
animated version, the 1991 version, though I, you know, I submit to you that given the level of CGI, like a lot of the time you're just looking at computer animation, it doesn't make a lot of sense to call this anything other than another animated version uh, of yeah. Beauty and the Beast that, that makes use of occasional um human performers but uh, or i should say live action performers as opposed to motion capture performers who are also who are also human right um people were allowed to be borderline sociopathic without uh much explanation or excuse whereas the kind of the, the current trend of psychologizing uh the beast's absent father for example or gaston's worry about being exposed and the kind of uh the uh uh push pull with lefou about this leading to the lock him up in an asylum plot rather than than just sociopathy uh, rather than just just will to power sort of doing it um, mutes uh, some of the culpability that is supposed to drive what are essentially morality tales what t- tales about how we ought to act uh, and how we ought not to act uh, with our our fellow uh, our fellow citizens or our fellow humans right but from the very beginning you can you can see that in in the the preamble right in the prolegomenon to any future beasting um, um, the the uh, there's a trivial change right in in the animated for in the 1991 version I'll call it um, the narrator says uh, that the beast has to learn to love another and earn her love in return uh, the new uh, the new remake says love another and earn their love in uh, return grammatically incorrect, but but you know uh, woker for for sure. Um, and then the big change in the the story is that the enchantress doesn't just come on a random cold night. The enchantress comes uh, in the middle of some kind of like debutante ball or something like something like this. And the way it's shot, right? Like there's something jaundiced. There's something kind of diseased about it. It's shot. I I think it's a wide lens that kind of distorts things around the around the edges. And there's a lot of spinny camera. It's disorienting. There isn't a lot of joy in it. You get the sense that being the prince, like being an aristocrat with literally dozens of you know nubile young debutantes to choose from, is actually kind of a drag, or is at least. Um, or uh, you know is at least sort of quasi nauseating and and this you know this sort of uh encodes i think the moral horror of this right like the idea of the debutante tradition being uh being sexist and being something that's that's uh in itself um uh bad right not you know not a good time um and and so it, like from like from the very beginning you're in you're in a different world you're in a world where I feel like the storytelling environment of today doesn't necessarily serve well uh, what is uh, essentially a fairy tale. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, when I think about what makes this story more modern than an old fairy tale, or feel more modern than an old fairy tale, but be older than a modern story, is that the monster owns the house, right? Like, in most of the stories, the monster is led into the house or is, like, invited into the house or, like, is sort of outside and, and somebody's nice to the monster. But the idea that the monster actually owns real estate is kind of a game changer uh, with regards to all well, that stuff. Anyway, mean, go ahead, who's, go ahead. who's the real monster? <laughs> ah, real monsters! <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, that's the big question, right? Mark, you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I mean, while we're talking about the, the, the wokeness of this movie, uh, the sense that I'm getting 
is that uh, there's sort of a window dressing or with a caffeinated shot that you're talking about, you know, all these sort of things around the edges that are trying to give it a more modern sense, social sensibility. But ultimately, uh, the story at its core, like it still can't shake the um, the regressive nature of the story at its core and sort of this, you know, sense of like female um, entrapment and, and, and lack of agency on on her part, even though in this version, uh, uh, Bell is given a lot more to do and a lot more agency. Am I, am I summarizing that correctly? I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that clearly before we start to move on to other things. Uh, I don't think it necessarily totally fails. Like, so my favorite little piece, there's so many little pieces of it that help restore Bell's agency. One of them is that it's apparent that she can pretty much leave whenever she wants, as long as she can survive the journey, right? She's never, she's only held against her will for like about 15 or 20 minutes, or maybe like an hour, or is it a couple hours? I don't know how how long it is. But like, she, it's it's pretty clearly let onto her that the beast isn't actually really in charge and can't really hold her. Uh, but the big one is that when she first meets the Beast, and they echo this in the end, there's like this little moment where she sees his hairy face and she seems kind of interested, right? And at the end, when she says, oh, you know, could you grow a beard, right? She says that to the Beast at like the very, very end of the movie. And that reaffirmed to me, she's into it. Belle was into the Beast <laughs> from the get-go. Also, Belle loves her horse, right? She's kind of one of those weird girls that just loves the big hairy things. And I shouldn't say it's weird, because it's not weird. That's the moral of the story, is that everybody loves what they love, right? Well, I and, think uh, I think they're called furries. <laughs> well, I'm just <laughs> saying that, like, the Beast is attractive in the story. The Beast is handsome. They go to a lot of trouble to give him big eyes and big shoulders. Like, have you guys ever seen that? Uh, and, I'll, and I'll hand off to the pivot away from this because I don't want this to get too deep. But there, there was a great little webcomic that was floating around about, like, uh, comic book characters, right? Where it's like, oh, why do the women? Well, people say that female comic book characters are super sexualized, but male comic book characters are, too, because they're always super muscly. And, and the counter argument is like, well, no, the male comic book characters are power fantasies if the male comic book characters were made as female as sexual fantasies for women this is what they would look like and someone drew batman with like a tiny waist and big pecs and giant eyes right (laughs) And, and like big lips Right. And I was like, and I just thought of it. That's exactly what the beast looks like. Right. The beast in this movie is a, is a sexual fantasy creature, not a power fantasy creature. Um, and uh, I think that changes it a little bit. Right. Because Belle's like, I kind of hate living in the, in the town. Uh, I don't really know where this is going, but I'm kind of into it. Right. <laughs> in a way that's not really spoken to directly until the end. But like, well, it's like and it's, it's a little thing. It's up the pressure a little bit. And he's that on the outside, and on the inside, he's Matthew Crawley from Downton Abbey. Well, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, one other thing on the topic of wokeness, and I think it sounds like we're ready to move on, uh, which is the multiracial casting, right? We can't get away from that and the fact that, you know, like like you so often, like we started to get used to see more so like in, in stage things, but also let's just say um, like the, the live action musicals that we've seen recently, there's a sense of colorblind casting um, that you just sort of present diverse people of color and you don't really interrogate the fact that oh wait this is supposed to be what you know uh, uh modern france you know or, or like 18th century france uh, and you wouldn't see black people uh in in aristocracy or really at all um we're not uh so you know we don't question that like it's the movie is have i think has a sort of an intentional um aim of it to present this as sort of like saying that no never mind this here like this is just uh, reflective of the tapestry, our modern, diverse tapestry, and we're using that to make this fairy tale 
more relatable. Um, I think it's you know it's 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 praiseworthy in, in that regard. And yet at the same time, though, it, it's it uh, we are still sort of trapped with the male and female protagonist, the love interest being uh, both white Europeans. Um, and so we can't get fully away from that. So I, I just wanted to, to at least like uh, have mentioned of the of the racial aspects of this. And it's clear, you know, the gender uh, dynamics going on here are, are probably more interesting to speak of than the, than the race stuff going on. But the, there is race stuff going on for sure. So, I mean, I guess this is a decent pivot. So I have another question for the whole panel, and it's slightly, only slightly less trolly than uh, is this is, is this movie woke, um, which is so aside from like re rewoking the uh, the movie and aside from um, making no, quiet, a- quiet, don't woke the beast. <laughs> uh, so, so aside from kind of updating the politics of the movie, and aside from making a buttload of movie, which they a buttload of money, uh, and they've made a buttload of movie, a buttload of movie, uh, two hours so, ten minutes, yeah, right. So, aside from money, aside from politics, what are the artistic reasons to make a live action Beauty and the Beast? Uh, and I think I'm specifically asking live actioning this specific uh, Disney animated film, um, as opposed to well, just that on its own. What, what kind of happens? What did you guys find interesting or compelling um, about going live action from uh, from the visual presentation of the animated film? I mean, I think that the 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 contributions of the the live actors, the non motion capture actors, are significant, right? Like Emma Watson is very interesting to to sort of look at as Belle, and and she sort of her journey through the film as she sort of discovers and and challenges and and uh, uh, you know progresses through the film is is a lot better than. Or um, is is more expressive in certain ways than uh, than the animated version. Though she's though that character is animated really well. I I watched the the uh, nineteen ninety one version in in preparation for this, and like it was uh, the the sort of threading that that line, threading that needle between um, uh, uh, assertive and, you know, uh, assertive and uh, Disney movie heroine <laughs> was um, was a, a, it was a tough needle to thread. And they, they did it well in the character design and, and in the animation. I mean, to the to the point where, like, it was important to the director that the that Matthew Crawley from Downton Abbey not be. Um, totally CGI that his face be practical makeup. And so they tried that and ended up CGIing it uh, in the end. But this like this emphasis on the eyes uh, on his eyes and kind of recognizing his eyes was largely because, you know, in the original plan, um, the idea was that they would be actually physically the same eyes, one, one behind makeup and one without, without makeup. Um, I mean, and and Gaston adds adds a huge huge amount, right? For for whatever reason, the uh, um, the live action uh, manages to convey the sort of fragility and insecurity behind that, um, you know, behind that sort of presentation of masculinity in a way that uh, is, you know, almost sympathetic. Uh, so, I mean, whether these are compelling enough reasons to, to you know, make a multi-hundred million dollar, two-hour, uh, ten-minute extravaganza, they're not nothing, is my point. 
Well, yeah, I think even um, like the like Josh Gad's characterization of LeFou and right. I guess like the the whole like really revamp of LeFou is like an actual character and not like, well, I mean, he's still kind of a punchline in this movie, but he's like less of a punchline. He's, he kind he's of, a thinking, feeling punchline. He's like a thinking, feeling, emotionally grounded punchline, you know, yeah, and not, he's not just a clown. Yeah, he's not just a clown. Mm-hmm. And um, and I do think there is like a lot there that is. I think Josh Gad like added a lot to the, you know, to that. And in like the performance of, you know, of Gaston, um, particularly, uh, the Gaston song, the Gaston song. Yeah, exactly. It just, he, he really, you know, you could sort of see that like, Oh, here's a guy who's done musical theater. Am I right? (laughs) 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 He, he really, he, there's like a, a commitment to the performance, um, that I think was like a very bright spot in the movie. And, and so I do agree that there is something that like the, the actors can lend, can really make the, the characters, you know, even kind of like be part of like really the revamping of these characters. That, that said, they, they were in Josh Gad and Luke Evans were in a different movie than Emma Watson and, <laughs> and Kevin Klein were right. <laughs> like, you know, like em, Emma Watson and Kevin Klein were in like a subtle kind of like micro expression, uh, uh, sort of like subtle, uh, story about a, uh, love between a father and a daughter in, in the wake of the, the wife's tragedy death um the mother's tragic death and luke evans and and josh gad were in were like the two princes from into the woods right like you know slapping slapping their chests and and standing on a waterfall uh i don't know more more uh more on what the live action adds to the story yeah it just i just think that if you think about what beauty and the beast is about it's about looking at something and seeing something other than what's surface level apparent right and how do you communicate the experience of seeing something other than what's shown to you in a visual medium, right? And I feel like that's something that a cartoon character can do in a very sort of direct and body sort of way, right? By giving a reaction other than the reaction you would expect. But that the experience of a more naturalistic human performance with some interiority to it can add a little bit of, okay, you know, LeFou is looking at Gaston and sees something different in Gaston than what Gaston is to everybody, right? Which is that LeFou, LeFou sees like a, a life partner, a potential, like a love interest, right? But nobody says that's what he is, which is sort of similar to looking at a clock and seeing a person or or looking at a person and seeing a clock or which whichever whichever uh, chicken and egg scenario we are in with regards to Cogsworth. Like, is he a, a clock that is a man or a man that is a clock? I guess it's the latter. But but yeah, but it's like if the show, if the movie, if the story is about appearances not being the same as realities then that's something that actors are are pretty good at communicating when they're good at being actors i guess um and you can layer it in a couple ways yeah i'm gonna take things a little bit of different direction i'm gonna focus on the visual the overall visual aspect of this and less so much on the acting um and i i thought that the entire movie came off as muted and drab, far less colorful. It didn't pop as much as the animated version. I mean, it's not surprising on a certain level. And some of this might also be a product of the fact that uh, I saw this in 3D and 3D in, in general, like it feels a little dimmer, like less bright uh, because of the glasses and, and, and whatnot. Um, but in particular, I'm thinking about all of the outdoor scenes that are at night and around the castle where there is darkness, right? 
Um, it's essentially it's it's night. Uh, there's not a lot of light, uh, ambient light around, and the beast is uh, skulking around the castle, and it's dark and it's moody and all these things. And I I think it was an intes- intentional artistic choice to shoot it that way. But you can think of plenty of other examples of uh, scenes that are shot at night that have a lot of artificial. Uh, light kind of flooded into the scene uh, while still, uh, you know, sort of the background blackness being there. So your brain immediately recognizes at night, but it still kind of illuminates faces and, and doesn't recess everything into shadow. So uh, I, I, I didn't take well to that. And also even like a, I don't know, I must point to one particular scene um, where it was still felt this this darkness uh, again intentionally so but uh, not pleasingly to me at least which is uh, when bell has her uh, what i call the sound of music moment towards the beginning of it when she's uh, leaving the town and she's on the hill and she gets her helicopter shot just like julie andrews does i guess now they do it with drones um and uh, and it's supposed to be at sunset and i expected this kind of explosion of color to be all around and yet everything felt dark and then you start to turn around and you see oh like off in the distance you see dark storm clouds uh, off to where the beast's castle is, and uh, and again, all, all that is to say that this is this is what the movie was trying to do, but uh, I, I did not find it at least as sort of viscerally pleasurable as I did with the animated movie. What, one like just a tiny bit of trivia is that digital tends to crush dark colors, um, whereas in film you can really see a long way into darkness, uh, and it's much mu- it's much better. Um, it's much better with, you know, uh, cinema quality equipment than it is with like your phone or a, a consumer grade camcorder. But um, the 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 idea that like dark is darker, that there's a narrower range um, of dark that's visible in in a digital film is, uh, you know, is something that has been the case for for a little while now. I don't know, Ryan, did, did we answer your question or did you, was there something on your mind when when you asked it? Well, I mean, I was open. I, I wanted to see how all of you um, experienced this. I think the thing that jumped out for me was something that was something that you guys didn't mention, which is the character design and presentation of the of the um, inanimate object characters of the of the household item characters. Um, I mean, especially Lumiere and Cogsworth. Um, and I mean, it's worth kind of you know if you haven't watched uh, this uh, the animated version lately, pull up images of these two of kind of Cogsworth and Lumiere. Um, and the other, um, the other kind of servant characters, and put them alongside the ones from the 2017 movie. Um, and you'll see, I mean, the level, the the extent to which uh, there's two things jumped out. I mean, one is that um, the in the 2017 movie, they are much more ornate, right? That they are, they're uh, like Cogsworth, uh, both Cogsworth and Lumiere um, are much more ornately detailed, um, much more re- richly detailed, um, and also. You know, the way in which they um, are given faces is a bit different than in the uh, in the earlier iteration. Right. That, um, you know, that that the Cogsworth's face uh, in the 2017 version is much more abstract. Right. It's much more appearing in the um uh, uh, in in the clock face, uh, Lumiere is um, like there is a, a sculpture of a man uh, that appears, or it appears to be a sculptural uh, candelabra. Um, and I found what I found, and especially with some of the um, other characters, especially Garderobe uh, and uh, and the the harpsichord character, the St- Stanley Tucci, the har- the harpsichord, um, was that I mean that by by making them less kind of cartoon. 
um, candelabras, cartoon uh, clocks, and having them be walking around humans trapped in clocks. Like, I felt that so much more. Like, the actual horror of that real realization, um, I think— Oh, it was harder. so horrific. It was so right? horrific. And the ending, yeah. too. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and I found that to be I mean, I, for me, I felt like what that did was kind of raise like those like those stakes of what it, what it feels like to actually be encountering this situation. Right. We kind of talk about um, that. I think we can maybe return to this later. What worked a lot, um, uh, a lot less well was the uncanny teapot valley uh, of the of the like of the line drawn face that appeared uh, for for Mrs. Potts and for Chip, uh, which was uh, um, which was horrific in a different way. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, but I, Rachel, you have something on this? Yeah, no. And I think because I think in part like the feeling that sense, the like human, their hum- the humanity of these inanimate objects. I, I felt like here you got a lot more of a sense of the kind of like desperation and urgency of trapping bell there. Mm-hmm. And like the, them trying to like subtly coerce her to like hang out with them a little longer. Yeah. Um, then you did necessarily the animated version. Uh, I, I just, I, you felt it more here, like the kind of subtle coercion, like, no, 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 stay, stay. It's okay. No, please have, you know, uh, you felt it, uh, you felt their desperation a little more. Um, but we're also like more sympathetic to it. Yeah, there's at the a same lot- time. Wait, go ahead, go ahead, Pete. Sorry, I was going to say, and at the same time, you understood Bell having a level of motivation of wanting to figure out what happened to these people and help them, right? Yeah. Like I sort of felt like for part of it, Bell was sticking around in the castle to solve the mystery and help these people, even more than to be around the beast at all. But anyway, uh, continue, continue. Yeah, I mean, well, it makes I, I, it makes sense why why she she changes. I mean, there there is I. It's not an unmixed blessing, right? Though though it really does aid the storytelling in in this case because the thing you can say about the animation is that it like by doing it by doing it with uh, a certain kind of poverty of expression or tools of expression, like you're forced to boil things down to their essences, and so there's a focus. Right, you really have to be intentional about the kind of story that you're trying to to tell. Does that make sense? Uh, ra- rather than rather than just being able to kind of pack all sorts of detail, um, you're forced to determine what you think is important because you're forced to leave a lot of of things out. And I felt that in a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the kind of CGI fantasias of like just uh, incredible sensation filling up every corner of the screen, like the gold coming down to decorate the dress or be our guest uh, or things like this, where, where maybe, you know, maybe a little, uh, it, it was uh, overwhelming. It was beautiful. It was uh, breathtaking. And, and maybe it was a little unfocused in terms of its, uh, uh, in terms of its presentation. I don't know. Maybe that's not, not charitable. No, I, I think, I think that that is, I think that is, that is fair. I mean, I, I liked as, as a counterpoint, I, I liked be our guest, um, because for the, the what we were describing about the the physical the physicalization of the um, of the servant characters of the objects, it, it gave it this kind of you know the, the dream ballet of of home decor. Like uh, you know that, that there is something about it that was it became much more. 
like it it became less like dancing right what i remember of the uh, of be our guest uh is is that it is like the characters are dancing but here there are it's much more like they are flying and they and they are kind of uh, moving about in space in in this much more eerie way that becomes um a, a that, again it's like um it's like a it's like a it's like a tornado hit a uh, restoration hardware right um but in slow motion <laughs> and uh and there's something about that that is very um disorienting uh, in an interesting way Rachel and I, yeah no and I think you get the same um in the kind of scene where the villagers come to uh the mob comes for the beast yeah um it, I think just the the uncanny like the 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 inanimate objects you actually, it's a lot harder to believe how horrifying that would be to suddenly be attacked <laughs> right. by a bunch of chairs. <laughs> right. The, and and to sort of remember that when they're shooting that Be Our Guest number, right, like it's Emma Watson alone in a green room, sitting on a green box, right, looking around at things, at probably tennis balls or something like that, things that, <laughs> things that aren't so- really there. So we've talked about the inanimate object a little bit. Before we started, Ryan, you mentioned something about dating, or even early on, about dating the movie based on the architectural and decor styles of the inanimate, not dating the movie, but dating the scenario, the the when the events of the movie are supposed to be taking place, based on what art movements you could see in the inanimate objects and in the architecture and decor of the rooms. Uh, is that is that something that you actually uh, know or figured out, or uh, or is, is yeah. that a, okay? No, I, I wasn't just putting you on. Um, okay, good. Because if you were putting me on, I was going to be heartbroken. Because I'm like, ooh, that <laughs> no, sounds no, no. delightful. No, no, no. So, well, so, and this this relates to the the level of detail and ornamentation that um, I see that I, I place the kind of somewhere um, in the in in kind of high baroque uh, and and the transition to Rococo um, so that is kind of um, that is around that would be late 17th um, early 18th century um, right and so that these are and um, as I recall and I, I this was on in mind in part because um, we, uh, Rachel and I were re- recently, um, in the last few months in Italy, um, and actually a lot of Baroque design, um, originated in Rome, um, in the, um, uh, in in the 17th century, and then kind of spread throughout uh, aristocratic uh, Europe, um, and and then kind of achieved and then kind of achieved a, an apotheosis and kind of morphed into an even more um, hyper stylized version uh, in Rococo in uh, France in that kind of. Uh, throughout the 18th century. So I think that in those designs, and you see this in the rooms, um, but also in um, the design of the objects, I see that as being kind of in that um, in that kind of broad arc. Uh, and it's not quite the the height of like later Rococo art that is um, like characterized by very, very um, heavy ornamentation um, and kind of lighter colors. So I kind of place this as kind of in that transition space between Baroque and Rococo. So, so that's kind of dating this for me at like I'd say right around the turn of the of the 18th century. So I would I would uh, I would add like I think Bell's room to me kind of has more of that later vibe because okay. of its like 
robin eggs blue color right. Right. and all that weird magical gold filigree that can yeah that can dress you up that's that's yeah right that's rocococulus Roco- yeah <laughs> no i mean that's like some louis sun king shit yeah, if yeah. i've ever well, seen that's, it that's precise okay so you're talking about late 17th early 18th century right so yeah. uh, louis the 14th his reign was from 1643 yep. to 1715 and so we're we're right in the bullseye there but that Brings up a really interesting question about the pol- political situation yes. of the town so here. I'm so right? glad you're going there. Because um, now my my recollection of French history is a little bit rusty, so I'm cribbing from Wikipedia here heavily. But the gist of it is basically that France was a feudal, as uh, you know, a collection of feudal kingdoms, uh, sub territories essentially run by lords, right? Uh, local local lords and uh, Louis the Fourteenth um, centralized government in France to a huge degree and became an absolute monarch governing the entire region of what most roughly considered to be modern France these days, right? So which leads us to the uncomfortable question yes. of if the if the local lord, the local prince, was turned into a beast and everybody uh, was, you know, under the spell and forgot, uh, you know, that uh, such a, a person existed, who was in charge? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's so, going on in this so, provincial so, little town? So here is is my hypothesis. So I think that it's it's mentioned that um, and depicted that all of the villagers forget about um, not only the beast, uh, the beast prince, but also any of the. And you see this at the end. Um, this is, I think, part of what Pete described as. Be, maybe there's a different part that was horrifying. But like that. Oh, no, this is this is horrifying. This, I mean, not, this is not a, when they were all happy, but when they were all dying, right, and turning into inanimate objects. Well, oh, right. Oh, okay. Oh, then, but then there's the other part of. There are several different people who like, uh, like uh, Mrs. Potts's husband was like, oh right, I had a wife. <laughs> <laughs> right, that he had just forgotten for a decade that he yeah. had a wife, and there's multiple people that forgot who they were were connected to. So one hypothesis that I had is that this like amnesia and kind of disappearance extends to all of the rest of France, and that this this is a a town that um that that time has forgotten. And I think there are some problems with consistency on that. Um, but but I think that. For that, re- so that's one hypothesis. Another is that it is remote enough that um, when the the prince turns into a beast and everyone forgets about him, it's a it's disconnected enough from both commerce and and kind of the major lines of power that like no one, no other nobles uh, nor the central government reassert uh, central control. Um, and so this is, and so to kind of answer Mark's question is that in either of those scenarios, um, it is kind of a small, uh, it, that, that it is, it is an anarchy, right? Uh, it is not, and, and I don't mean anarchy in the, in the head of, in, in the mean of chaos, but like you see, right? Like, you know, especially in this depiction, um, it's pre- it's shockingly and frighteningly easy for Gaston um, to throw Belle and her father uh, in the in the uh, in the asylum. Right, that there is not there's no due process. Right, there's not a mayor, there's not a police chief, um, there is only the mob. Right, and so there's a sense, um, and you get the sense in this in the first number in the Bell number that this is a very small face to face community that is operating um, without kind of hierarchy uh, and and policing, which maybe works well for the boring day-to-day life of, uh, of, of the kinds of commerce that they're engaged in. Um, but 
when uh when when things start to get uh to get i mean it's like we see what what happens when the french villagers villagers stop being polite and start getting real <laughs> um and and it's that they 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 become a mob uh very quickly so those are those are my reads on kind of the internal governance of bell's village uh and also how that relates to the larger political structures of uh of early modern uh early modern centralizing france C'est magnifique. <laughs> I, I, I think it. it's interesting. I mean, I love the I love the idea of it because it kind of turns this into like Lost. <laughs> like this is like it ends up like Beauty and the Beast had more in common with Lost than we thought. Uh, but it, then I do think for your point that I think there's like inconsistencies with that. I think it is like the taxation question. Like, because they established this idea that, like, the villagers had, like, money to tax, like, that there's, like, tax revenue being generated. The prince had been taxing them, right? Right, yeah. So, like, someone, someone must want that, like, they're... I don't know what they're doing that could generate tax revenue, but like someone would be after it. And and like and even like the idea of the asylum begs the question, like, well, what is the asylum? Is it like Mr. Old, you know, is it? I see, it seems to be the it, creepy guy who has like just a, like a cage. Who has a cage. Right. Exactly. It's like it's not. But like to call it asylum makes it sound like it's like funded by someone. Right. But it doesn't seem like it. I, I agree that it would it would be more realistic that like by asylum, we mean like Mr. Old Man's creepy garage. Right. Um, <laughs> and not and not like actually like someone providing some sort of public good, because then I think you would need like it would sort of make more sense. than if like maybe Gaston was like from a rich family right. or something like like Gaston is like the rich merchant family in town. Who basically is like Mediciing this like stupid village, you know? But, um, but like I, I don't think that's really established. It seems like Gaston does have some money, but it's not really like it, they don't really tie him well, to a, being part of like he's a warlord. He's a war, right? <laughs> he's like, wait, so wait, so wait, so did Gaston fight in the Fronde? Is that what he was at war? Was he at war? Was he fighting against the French king in like in the front of the parliaments, like in the 1640s, right? Where they were, or was it the Spanish Franco Spanish War? Or anyway, sorry, could have been one of. um, I mean, it would be interesting to see where we date this. that there were a bunch. I mean, there, there what? There were three or four major wars. Um, I mean, there were the, the Franco-Dutch War, War of the League of Augsburg, and the War of the Spanish uh, Successions were big ones um, during the Louis the Fourteenth era. So there were definitely there were big um, international wars that he could have participated but, on. But what if he fought in a French civil war but doesn't remember? And nobody remembers that they fought a civil war against the king that they lost. (laughs) And they just like paint his picture in the bar. Right. And they're like, hey, Gaston went to war and he came back and he seems really kind of emotionally disturbed. But nobody remembers what happened and nobody talks about it. And everyone's fine with it. Right. Like if it's are we just like a couple of weeks away from Louis the 14th just coming into town and tearing that castle to the ground and throwing the beast in prison? Like, so what's going to happen. <laughs> so go, going back to the question of who supplies public goods in this scenario, um, one, one thought occurred to me is that well, uh, in this time in France, the Catholic Church might do a lot of these things. Hmm. But do you see any mention of, or reference to religion at all in this movie? I mean, no. I will say that uh, in the uh, in the animated version, 
or in the 90s version of it, at least, uh, you see it briefly in, in the scene where Gaston is trying to, like, you know, get married on the spot to Vel. There is a priest who's present, but uh, well, there, that is the there's only a, there's a priest present, religion, as far as I remember. There's a priest present in this one. He's black, as so many Catholic priests were at oh, the time. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and he, uh, about that. he yeah. maintains the lending There was a library. shortage of priests in France, so all the free priests were coming from Nigeria, right? That's what was going on at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and like the priest has the sad library. Well, well, actually, Nigeria was a British colony. <laughs> no, it would have been Algeria, right? <laughs> all the Oh man! In, oh man! I like. The well, so, so the point being, though, would have been fine. <laughs> the point being, though, is that the Catholic Church plays a, a, a no role in the story of like how the society organizes itself, or even from that, like you know how it uh, blesses romantic unions, or you know uh, uh, curses. Uh, amoral behavior. I'll tell you, right. if there's freaking warlocks running around doing business, the church is not doing its job, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like somebody dropped the ball. I think that somebody's <laughs> stopping hey man, the black- it, like, Given this time, like they're still reeling from the Reformation, all right? Like They're, they're getting their house in order. <laughs> and the great vampire wars of the 15 and 1600s. <laughs> oh, the, the, the Van Helsing, uh, the Van Helsing <laughs> emergency. Yeah, Van Helsing was Protestant, so <laughs> <laughs> it would be amazing if, like, at the end of this, there's a post credit scene that connects this to the, the a Van Helsing universe. Right? And there's a, a, a Van Helsing cinematic universe crosses over to Beauty and the Beast of Earth. Oh, well, if Marvel is owned by Disney, you know what that means. That Go we on. Have, we can have Blade hunt the beast. <laughs> and Blade is an agent of the Vatican who's sent to this forgotten part of France to hunt these occult monsters. And he shows up too late after the curse is broken. Uh, but he, he doesn't believe and he keeps looking around to see what's going on. And then actual vampires attack by coincidence. Uh, and then they have to defend the castle. Something along those lines. Gaston right. comes back to life. I think I, one more thing to on this kind of like, what's the beast? What's the deal with the beast? politically um what's the deal with the bees politically <laughs> too many buttons is he woke <laughs> he wears uh, pants where's pants I, it makes me think about like the act like the story that in that may have inspired this whole like the novel and the the the, the tale mm-hmm. right which is about um like a real life guy from the i think from tenerife yeah. In the Canary Islands, who had um, I forget the name of the of the disorder, um, but he had the, uh, the con- uh, he had the opposite of alopecia. Yeah, he had the condition where you grow hair out of your face, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, you well, know, in front we just call that manhood. <laughs> no, you, you mean out of his whole face, like out of his yes, eyes, yes. And his cheeks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. He had that condition. Um, uh, hypertrichosis. Yeah, hypertrichosis. Um, and I think there was like a real, a real question about. Um, he he ended up being kind of like an oddity at the at the French court, mm-hmm. um, and but the the French royalty uh, decided that they were going to treat him like a human, right? And uh, kind of as this like little experiment, kind of I think in like. I don't know, like what, like the the bounds of like rationale, like I guess the kind of little enlightenment experiment, like can we teach this animal how to do things? <laughs> and he's not an animal, <laughs> but he's not an animal. But whatever, that, right? Yeah, like he's got uh, face beard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> can we teach this face beard to do things? Um, and so like they they treat they 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 give him an education, and he like basically is 
like a noble person um and he marries this like he he gets his like noble like beautiful like you know well-connected wife right and uh and he ends up basically being like a, a guest um him and his wife have children and like uh they end up being kind of like lifelong i guess like get at like guests of different royal courts who find him like in a, in a weird like an interesting oddity and like want him around um and he ends up settling in uh parma where he he basically helps like the duke of parma like manage some land right so it makes me think like you know in some ways it's like the calling he isn't <laughs> He isn't a prince. It's just the villagers think he's a prince, but he is. He is a dude managing some random ass estate for someone else. I love the idea that he's just like a gardener and he's not even a prince. But and it, but he's like Matthew Crawley, right? He's like he's just like here, go he's manage the, some land. He's the agent. He's the agent. He's the agent. You know, and so like it's like he we can't really take literally that he's a prince. The villagers just think that's what he is, but he's really just like a noble agent guy, uh, you know. And it is a remote enough village that like maybe they just don't really even understand like who they're who is like the person who like governs them. Don't know who he is. <laughs> didn't even try. Noble agent guy. <laughs> um, so uh, actually, speaking of, speaking of that that famous melody, um, this I mean, this is not just a uh, th- this film is not just a political commentary. It's also a musical. Uh, <laughs> God help us. <laughs> and uh, and I think we should probably. I mean, because like this this film. In in remaking the 1991, where those I mean those songs are so uh, ingrained into our childhoods, and I think ingrained into the culture. Um, in doing the sound of music shot, like really just baldly, and not even adding all that much in terms of like a, a strong misreading or anything like that. Um, but just sort of doing doing it uh, as a, a straight homage or else trying to just bite off that shot from Sound of Music, um, right? Like, they are, they are willing to tread on sacred ground uh, of, you know, American musical films. So how, uh, uh, how, how do we feel like they, they did as a musical? Like, how, how did you find the delivery, the, the performance of the songs in, in uh, execution? Pete, I think you might have some opinions, <laughs> <laughs> some opinions that 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 you want to to uh, share about this. People complained about Les Miserables so much, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you, if Hugh Jackman had been and, in this movie, and Anne Hathaway <laughs> is Maria Callas compared to. I will say this: when we finished watching this movie, uh, my girlfriend asked me which movie was better, this movie or Logan, because I saw Logan for the second time on Friday, and then. It, it holds up, people. It holds up. But uh, I will I will say this. Uh, Logan is the better singer, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, to, to I, I thought she was going to ask you which uh, which movie is better, this or La La Land. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's obvious. That's I mean, don't I, I've, I've been trying to misquote the Logan scene of the girl in the truck, by the way, constantly just being like, Rickard, what is it? Rickard, da-da, da-da, por favor, North Dakota, por favor. And everyone just thinks I'm crazy because nobody remembers. Anyway, the point is that there are the songs from disney that people sing and they do and there's like what are there's like a few people in the cast who are like professional singers and do a good 
job and it's fine. And then there's like one or two songs that are added that are kind of okay. Nothing really stands out. It's great. Some of, some of them yeah. from the Broadway musical uh, adaptation. Ah, okay. That makes sense. That makes with, sense. With lyrics where Tim Rice fill, filled in uh, on the lyrics um, right. for the late, great Howard Ashman. Gotcha. And, and there's just a bunch of moments where the, the the actor clearly just doesn't have the chops to do the job of singing the song. And uh, it is, it is uh, auto-tuned. Within an inch of its life. Yeah, right? I mean, t- let's you can say it. It's it's Emma Watson, uh, yeah. notably, right? Like, and yeah. and in that, you can just sort of tell from the way the like the mathematical center of the pitch and a, a kind of like mm, a, a kind of like mechanical quality to the intonation um, that just that just robs it of expression and it's a uh, uh, it's a shame because these are alan menken howard ashman songs like these are great um great musical theater songs they're expressive they're poetically interesting they're surprising uh the fact that like p- you know people still sing them people of our generation still sing them to this day like you don't sing every song that you know that you learned as a child like only certain ones stick with you and it's a testament to like how well constructed they are um that uh uh that that these do you know anyway sorry i'm i'm uh uh d- monopolizing but that but i don't want i i just don't i just it it makes me mad because i know so many very very good actors who are also very very good singers and they're not uh famous and they couldn't open a a movie to whatever it is five gajillion billion dollars but uh uh i i just think that when there's a huge missed opportunity in that the execution of the music is not better well, there's also a huge missed opportunity. If they were going to deploy the auto-tune, they just should have cast T-Pain as Lumiere. <laughs> that, would have been great. that would have been awesome. Right? Oh, yeah. Be a Kanye is a shorty. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's not even at the level where you can make sort of commentary about interpretive choices. Because it just sort of seems like a lot of the time, like Matthew Crawley does a reason. Matthew Crawley has that song, that added song where he's in the tower. It's okay. Right? The song is not any damn good, though, right? Yeah. Like, like he does it. He sort of. It, it's a. It's a park and bark, right? And it's it's Wait, park and bark. Is that German? Park. No, it's not. It's where you park your ass down Sage Center and you shout the song as loud as you can to the to the <laughs> hey, listen, second that's, balcony. That's very anti-beast normative. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like beasts can sing too. All right. It's, <laughs> it's a it's a musical theater term of art i suppose um but like it's it's definitely like there's nothing it's 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 something that's meant to be done by an actor alone on a stage and it's not necessarily adapted for the like the cinematic environment in the same way that a lot of the other songs are like well adapted for the for what cinema brings to them like notably the the opening song in in the village at the end of which you know almost all the major character you know you have almost all the information that you need to understand uh to understand the film I, you know, I will say I, th- I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna focus on I think one of the good musical numbers yeah. in this, uh, which I do think Gaston was like, ex- ex- like an extraordinarily welcome, like, I don't know, I felt like it was updated uh, in, in a pretty fun and and good way. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I had been looking for the a quote explicitly gay moment of this film, 
And I thought it was like the updated verse in Gaston. <laughs> right, where, where, he says, what, where he shoots from behind. behind. Yeah, Is that yeah, fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care. <laughs> uh, I, I like, I'm like, oh, that was it. That was the explicitly gay moment. <laughs> I, it was way gayer than like any dancing scene. Um, but I, I do think like it, it's. I mean, I think Josh Gad, like, you know, he is a musical theater person. He can sing. But I think it was just also, um, you know, he it's like kind of staged that he's like throwing money at everyone in the pub. Right. He's like bribing everyone to kind of like Gaston and to play the song and to kind of be a part of the um, to be a part of like the the cheer up crew. Um, and I, I do think that's like shot well and, and, and kind of, per, I, I think staged well in a way that is like a little bit of an improvement from the animated version of that song. And I do think the updated lyrics, um, which I do want to focus on this up, this, like the verse that like, uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken decide was like too raunchy for the 1991 animated film, which is uh, like, I think like. You know, I when I when I sh- like when I hunt, um, I shoot with my quiver, um, and I stalk every beast and prey. Uh, at fr- no or no, I I forget what it. Uh, I need to pull up the lyrics, but it ends with like first I shoot for the liver, I aim for the liver, but then I shoot from behind, and that's where you get the is that fair? I don't care. Um, I I do think. I do think there's like something very. I, not only is it like the the whole scene with the reimagining of LeFou, like infuses this kind of like, um, kind of like homoerotic, and then also like Gaston has like down low tendencies backstory, but like it also I think to me it's like implies this idea of like Gaston as like, uh, like the selfishness, right? He's like he's not only a selfish like hunter, but he's like also a selfish lover. Like he didn't even give his prey. <laughs> Like a, like a reach around or anything in return. He just came and he left. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think I think like I just think the addition of this one new verse, I like it makes the whole song like so much raunchier than like it and and like which I think is fun. And then I I think it still has like the same meta um the meta humor that was in the original 1991 version, right? Like who else can come up with all these endless refrains? Um, and I think later when there's like the reprise where he kind of like hashes out the like the kind of plot to commit Maurice, um, you know, and he's kind of called out like who else would persecute harmless crackpots like Gaston? I think there's just like a, a and the antlers and all of my decorating, all of the great like meta lines really are like staged well and and shine. I, I think to me this was like the highlight of the movie. Yeah, was well, I also forget the uh, the uh, oh I'm functionally illiterate. A good movie and and you know in, in the great theatrical tradition dating back to Shakespeare like a great tavern scene. You know, I once, yes. <laughs> I once had a director tell me, here's how you can tell whether you can make it in the theater. Can you go into Shakespeare, put your leg up on a put your leg up on a bench, hold a tankard of ale and go, I, uh, if you can do that in a tavern scene, you have what it takes to be in show business. <laughs> uh, 
it's just, the tavernness like makes me think like Lay Miz was on the mind. Like we need a real master of the house number here. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, yeah. get this. Let's get it. Let's get that on. And, and yeah, and sort of a tour de force. Well, good to end on one of the high points uh, of the film, and I think we can all agree that was one of them. All right, uh, let's uh, leave our conversation there, but open it up to the comments. Go to the show notes uh, of of this uh, episode on overthinking it. You'll find the comment section there, and you can talk about uh, the wokeness, the the liberal agenda uh, of of this movie. You can talk about what you felt like the live action didn't add, whether uh, uh, whether the musical performances were good or not good, uh, whether they are ruining your childhood. Um, you know what? If you want to talk about whether they're they're ruining your childhood, go to BuzzFeed and post a lift listicle in their like user generated <laughs> section. But anything else, come to overthinking it and let's let's uh, comment there. We will be back with more overthinking it next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. C'est probablement ne mérite pas.